Welcome to The Wrap, a weekly podcast covering women's sports news. My name is Chloe Dalton. I'm an Olympic gold medalist and I play AFLW for the GWS Giants. Every week on the show, I'm joined by my co-host Bez, who's across all things women's sport, head researcher, merch queen at the Female Athlete Project. Bez, what have we got this week? Taking a look around the grounds, Opals draw rivals Serbia for the World Cup. Sam Kerr adds another trophy to the cabinet and Russia and Belarus banned from the Winter Paralympics. For our key story, we'll discuss the WNBA franchise that stands accused of treating its players too well. Shocking. Don't get me started. Could be a long one. In the ice bath with Budgie Smuggler, we chat to netballer, Melbourne Vixers player Rani Samerson, who is currently preparing for the upcoming Suncorp Super Netball season. This podcast drops every Tuesday morning at 6am and also comes in email format. We've got an amazing team behind the scenes who put it all together so it hits your inbox Tuesday mornings. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to subscribe and subscribe to this podcast too so you don't miss an episode. 50, the big half century. So it's just a little muted celebration, a small raise of the bat towards the grandstand. 50 episodes of The Wrap. I didn't actually say what 50 was, <laughs> by the way. Pretty cool because it's International Women's Day. We've released the 50th episode of The Wrap today and the Daisy Pierce episode last week was episode number 25. Quarter century, not as important, but some cool milestones there to tick off for TFAP, I reckon. Let's take a look around the grounds. In cricket, the ICC World Cup's kicked off on Friday and the Aussie batters made a very strong statement against the English team. Rachel Haynes was in fine touch as she scored a ODI career best 130 from 131 balls. She combined with captain Meg Lanning, who scored 86 runs for a match-winning partnership. It was an emotional day for the Aussie team after receiving news of Shane Warne's passing and they put on an exceptional display posting three for 310 from its 50 overs. The English team were left the daunting prospect of a world record ODI run chase to win and were actually right in it for most of the chase. Nat Skyver made an unbeaten 109, but England fell just 12 runs short, scoring eight for 298 from its 50 overs. Uh, the Australian bowlers all contributed throughout the innings, but it was Australian leggy Alana King who turned the game, taking two for 10 in her first three overs. Um, quite fitting that a leg spinner had such an impact on the game given the news of Warren's passing. King was just 11 years old when she sat in the stands at the MCG and watched the great Shane Warne take his 700th test wicket in 2006. Um, His genius inspired her to take up the craft and after the match, King said, I think he's inspired not just me but plenty of players all around the world to do the great stuff that we do. There was a bit of an empty feeling this morning when I woke up. It was a bit of disbelief, to be honest. He was a big competitor. He never gave in and he was always fighting to the end and I hope that I've instilled a little bit of that and I'll never give up when I'm bowling. Um, Australia's next match will be today, Tuesday, at 12pm against Pakistan. In basketball, the draw for this year's Basketball World Cup was held in Sydney last week and the Aussies are currently sitting at number three in the world. They've been drawn in Group B alongside France, Serbia, Japan, Nigeria and Canada. There's not really an easy pool to be drawn into because of the quality across the tournament. Um, And I think it's going to be a really interesting one. The head coach, Sandy Brondello, has talked about this rivalry that now exists between Australia and Serbia. We know the Rio 2016 heartbreak where we were defeated in the quarterfinal against Serbia. Recently, we travelled over to Serbia for the qualifiers and they they got up over the Opals again. So I think 
what they're really hoping for is that a bit of home ground advantage for the Opals with with a loud Aussie crowd is going to um, work in their favour for that one. You take, you're taking your ta- towel waving skills? Absolutely. Yes. Patty Mills over here will be in the crowd. <laughs> the top four from each pool will progress to the quarterfinal stage and the Opals are going to have to be consistent throughout the tournament. They claimed a historic world title in 2006 and have finished third and second in the respective last two instalments. The draw was conducted by basketball royalty Michelle Timms and the GOAT Lauren Jackson was in attendance. LJ might just be the biggest trump card of all, with the Hall of Fame champion a chance of joining the squad after her comeback with hometown NBL One Club Aubrey Wodonga. She'll turn 41 in September but hasn't ruled out an international comeback. We can't wait to see how this return goes and hopefully looking forward to watching her on home soil at the World Cup. I'm calling it. Oh, bring her back. All right, in soccer. Uh, there was some excellent news out of Football Australia on the weekend when they announced that Matildas will face World Cup co-host New Zealand in a two-game friendly series in April. The location of the first friendly on April 8 is yet to be confirmed. However, FA confirmed the second game will take place at Cambridge GAO Stadium on April 12. So good to see the Matildas back on home soil again. Uh, meanwhile, Sam Kerr's trophy cabinet must be getting a little crowded. Over the weekend, Kerr was honoured at the London Football Awards when the Chelsea striker was named the England Cap- Capital FA Women's Super League Player of the Year. Unfortunately for Kerr, she couldn't add a team trophy over the weekend. Her Chelsea team went down to Man City in the Continental Cup final. Kerr put Chelsea in front after 34 minutes, but it was her Matilda's teammates, Alana Kennedy, playing centre-back, and Hayley Razzo on the left wing, who got the win when their Man City side scored three goals in 21 minutes. Quite a patch. Mm. The final score was 3-1 to City and the enthralling match was played in front of a record crowd for the competition of over 8,500 people. The A-League Women's Premiers Plate was awarded on Sunday to Sydney FC. Melbourne City earlier in the day defeated Western Sydney Wanderers 2-0, which put them on top of the ladder. Hours later, Sydney FC faced Adelaide United, which was second v third on the ladder. So this year's final series will see Sydney FC and Melbourne City face off in the 1v2 match. The winner of that will go straight to the GF and earn the hosting rights. And the loser of that contest will play the winner of the third v4 matchup between Adelaide United and Melbourne Victory. And that will be, interestingly, Adelaide's first finals appearance in their 14-year history. So massive effort for the Reds there. In AFLW, last week on the podcast, I had the chance to speak to probably someone who's a bit of AFLW royalty, a real pioneer of the game, Daisy Pierce. If you haven't listened to this one yet, make sure you check out the podcast. It was um, it was really cool. I've I've admired Daisy from a distance and played against her. Um, it was really special to sit down and have a chat with her. Just a, a country Victorian kid, just very down to earth, very humble and and really open with what she shared. So I really enjoyed that one. If you haven't listened to it yet, favorite moment? Oh gosh, I enjoyed the would you rather at the end, yeah. asking her whether she wants to win a premiership or, or whether her twins would want to win. I think she took that a bit too literally. She did. She's competitive. Found a way around <laughs> answering that. She is driven. That was a bit of a segue, but she's back in the news this week because she's weighing up an offer to join Geelong as the men's AFL assistant coach. Geelong Chief Executive Steve Hocking has confirmed that the club has approached Daisy to be an assistant coach for the men's team, working under the mentorship of senior coach Chris Scott. She's expected to retire at season's end, but has not yet made an announcement about her future. 
She's reportedly been approached by several clubs for a coaching position, but a source with knowledge of the situation confirmed the Cats are in advanced discussions to secure her services in 2022. It's also been revealed that Essendon offered Daisy the position of being the club's inaugural AFLW coach. However, they confirmed that Pierce, after much consideration, turned that offer down. She's part of the AFL's accelerated coaching program, which is designed to fast track female coaches. This is, I love seeing this because we've talked about the inequalities that exist for female athletes, but there's so many elements to that in women's sport as a whole, getting more women into coaching roles, administrative roles, sitting on boards and things like that. So I really like the fact that the AFL are are doing something really practical to put something like this in place. So the program will see the AFL and clubs co-fund six positions for women to be employed in an AFL men's or AFL women's coaching position for a minimum two-year period. The six successful applicants will then receive mentoring from a senior men's AFL coach. The AFL will co-fund the program and the clubs involved will receive exemption from soft cap limits, which is the amount of money clubs can spend on football department staff. Given her extensive knowledge of the game, if she chooses to move into the coaching space, her signature will be hot property. It is pretty safe to say that she's got some more important business to take care of before she even considers her off-field future. On Saturday, the D's kicked the highest score in AFLW history in a demolition of depleted Fremantle. 16 goals, 11, 107 to three goals, one, 19. Do you think the, do you think the coach got angry about the 11? Could have been 140. So that, that is the first AFLW team to crack the hundred. So a huge effort by the D's. And our mate Daisy became just the fourth player ever to kick five goals in a game when she registered five goals, two behinds, and 17 disposals in a huge game for the Demon Skipper. The Dockers were missing Emma O'Driscoll and both Ebony and Cara Antonio through health and safety protocols when they were ruled out just an hour before the opening siren. That's got to put a dent in your team an hour before bounce mm-hmm. off, doesn't it? And they're pretty big names too. All right, in the Winter Olympics. The International Paralympic Committee have banned Russian and Belarusian athletes from competing at the Beijing Paralympics. The IPC had earlier handed down a ruling stating that athletes from the two nations would be permitted to compete, but only as neutral, with colours, flags and other national symbols removed. The backlash following this decision was swift, with many athletes coming out to say they would not compete against Russian or Belarusian competitors. IPC President Andrew Parsons addressed the Russian and Belarusian athletes saying, to para-athletes from the impacted countries, we're very sorry that you're affected by the decisions your governments took last week in breaching the Olympic truce. You are victims of your government's actions. A quick update on our Aussie Winter Paralympians. We've seen so far Amelia Hodgson, who competes as a sighted guide with alpine skier Patrick Jensen. Over the weekend, they finished eighth in the para-alpine skiing and then in the Super G, they've had their best ever finish in sixth place. Make sure you keep an eye on our Instagram. We've got you covered with daily schedule, results, medals, highlights, all the good stuff. The whole kit and caboodle. In surfing, this is a cool one. Uh, the Rip Curl Portugal Pro is happening at the moment. We had three Aussies who progressed to the quarterfinals, Tyler Wright, Steph Gilmore and India Robinson. Tyler and India unfortunately knocked out with Steph progressing to the semifinals. At the time of recording, it hasn't happened. When it hits your ears Tuesday morning, we might just have a result. So best of luck to Steph for that one. My favourite part of this is to celebrate International Women's Day. 
Jesse Miley Dyer, who does an incredible job at the WSL, has um, been a part of implementing the surfers wearing on their jerseys. Do they call them jerseys? Yeah, they do call them jerseys. Great. Weird choice. Rash vest? (laughs) Rashies. Numbered rashies. Numbered rashies. On their jerseys, each athlete competing, both across the men's and the women's competition, have the name of a female athlete who has inspired them. So we've seen Tyler Wright has Sue Bird on her back, um, iconic basketballer, and we know how much Tyler loves the WNBA. If you haven't listened to Tyler's interview on TFAT, make sure you go and check that one out. Steph Gilmore, this was a really cool one. She's got Phyllis O'Donnell, who was the first ever world surfing champ back in 1964. Bez, you read a cool story about her? Yeah, so she grew up in Dremoyne, which is an inner west suburb of Sydney. Um, Apparently her oldest sister had a boyfriend who surfed, and this is, you know, obviously what would have been in the 50s. Mm. Lefties bought at their place and her and her sister took it down to Manly Beach and had a crack and that's where she started to learn. So good. So good. Another one I loved, uh, Kanoa Igarashi, the men's surfer, had Naomi Osaka on his back as well. So I think it's a really powerful thing. Did you see Jadson Andre actually put Miley Dyer's name on his jersey? Yeah, I loved that. Awesome. I loved that. Very cool. Yeah, so I think we know how important it is for these women to wear the names on their backs but – the power that male athletes have to use their platforms to raise awareness of women in sport often goes unrecognized. So I think it's really cool that they've done it across both the men's and women's competitions. Let's take a look at the key story. In what is a unique and truly maddening scandal, a prominent WNBA franchise stands accused of treating its players too well. The New York Liberty owners, Joe and Clara Wusai, have been fined by... WNBA for violating the organization's collective bargaining agreement, which we'll refer to as a CBA moving forward because it's a lot of words, mm-hmm. on numerous occasions. How did they do so, you ask, Chloe? Well, they paid for a team trip to Napa over the Labor Day weekend and they paid for charter flights for the team during the second half of the 2021 WNBA season. Shocking. <sighs> the Napa trip exceeded the allowable compensation to players and the flights were deemed to provide a competitive advantage to the New York team. These violations led to a record fine of US $500,000, removal of Liberty Executive Oliver Weisberg from the league's executive committee. So the issue with this one is not just whether the CBA can be updated to allow such travel, but whether the varied group of WNBA owners are willing to spend the money. It features a mix of aggressive new owners with a bit of cash to spend who want to signal their optimism for the future versus the more old school owners who prefer the conservative approach that define the league's past. For some owners, the WNBA team has been a place to park losses made elsewhere. For some, their contribution is seen as pure charity. But refreshingly, there are those owners who invested consistently in their teams and in the process have turned about half of them into consistent profit makers. So the commissioner of the WNBA, Kathy Engelbert, said, She would really like the league to use chartered flights throughout the season, but she said it's not financially responsible to do so now. She stated the cost to provide charter flights for every team would be in excess of US $20 million per season, and currently that kind of spend would jeopardise the financial health of the league. She knows there's been a number of discussions with potential partners. We've asked all the major airlines. We've asked charter companies. I've been working on on this since the moment I came into the league. But without sponsors stepping up, it's just not on the cards right now. If we could get it sponsored or funded in some way, I'm all ears. When you think about the WNBA, we're talking 30 home and away matches in a season. 
we're talking a, a pretty big country where you're flying three, four hours, sometimes more at a time. These women are fairly sizable athletes, wouldn't want to be sitting in economy next to Brittany Griner. Long legs. Very long legs. So, yeah, it's it might seem like maybe a bit of a hullabaloo, but at the end of the day, this is about their you know performance and and well equality really. Inglebert did go on to highlight the importance of the CBA in ensuring that rules exist to create competitive balance and to give every team an opportunity to compete for a championship under fair rules. There has to be a level playing field as much as you can have a level playing field. But with those new owners such as the size and Mark Davis of the Las Vegas Aces being billionaires who also own men's pro sports team, there's been the question raised of whether there is conflict between the WNBA's wealthiest owners and the others. Now, I'm excited for this part because we're going to have a debate. I actually don't know whether we agree or disagree. I feel like we're probably going to agree on this one, but it's a really tricky one and it's obviously going to be seen across a multitude of sports. As women's sports continues to grow and prosper and have investors and sponsors coming on board, we're going to see different teams get different levels of access to funding for things like chartered flights. Do you allow it or do you ensure there's an equal playing field? I think for me there's two, two uh, streams of thought. If I want an, a competition that is, in inverted commas, fair, uh, and controlled. Yes, you need a CBA. You need a salary cap. Yes, you need to limit what billionaires can spend on their teams to ensure that you don't end up with two or three super powerful teams and the rest languishing. However, you know, is that a restriction of free trade? And are you limiting all athletes just to excuse some probably frugal behavior from some ordinary owners? Um, so, yeah, I guess the question at the end of the day is do you want an even competition where it's not dominated by one or two big teams or do you want to hope that my old favourite uh, quote, you know, if you've got these, these owners out there willing to invest and spend, rising tide lifts all boats, you know, maybe it'll make those, those other owners that probably don't take it as seriously as they should pony up. I feel like you haven't really, you've given me quite a balanced answer there. You haven't really gone one way or the other. I think probably what's a clear distinction in this example is the fact that it's about flights. So I understand the salary caps because that that can create a real distinction between access to talent and players. But I think a huge area that's lacking in women's sport is access to resources, recovery, things like that. This is a small win that can make the players' lives easier. And I understand the financial elements of it, but I'm going to use a case study. The New South Wales cricket team, the Breakers, the women's team, back in 2016 became the first professional team when Len Lease, as sponsors, came on board and said, we want these girls to be professional athletes. So the minimum salary was about $35,000 and girls who were playing internationally who were playing for the Breakers could earn about $100,000. I'm also reusing this. We discussed it on my Giants podcast the other day, but I think it's a great case study. What, that, what happened then? They were already such a successful team. By 2018, they'd won 19 of the 22 titles in the Women's National Cricket League competition in history. Dominant team, made professional. All the other states then had to get on board. Look at the state of cricket now. How success, We know how successful our Aussie women's cricket team have been. But cricketers across our entire country 
now have the opportunity to be full-time athletes because I think that's a, an example of when there's a team that's so far ahead, if they get something put in place like the opportunity to be full-time athletes, the other teams almost have to find a way to not get left behind. So on that case study, I'm saying- Let the, let, bi- let the billionaires have at it. <laughs> yeah. And I'll give you my number if you need it. So WNBL flag waiver to WNBA, what are you going to do there? Own a team. Oh, excellent. <laughs> no, it, 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 that is a perfect example. And I think one of the things that you touched on, which for me in my environment in rugby union is absolutely close to my heart, is just making um, sure that the teams and, and the, the, the playing environment has enough resources to not be worried about waiting to see a physio or, you know, all that is kind of enough staff, enough food, enough field allocation, all those types of things that just make turning up and playing and getting better at your craft infinitely easier. Now it's time for the Budgie Smuggler Ice Bath. This week in the Ice Bath with Budgie Smuggler, we chat to netballer, Melbourne Vixens player Rani Samerson, who is currently preparing for the upcoming Suncorp Super Netball season. Chloe caught up with Rani earlier this week. Rani, thank you so much for having a chat with us uh, on The Wrap today. To kick us off, can you tell us how you first started playing netball? Um, so my mum, this is a funny story. Uh, I have four brothers, so two older, two younger, and I'm right in the middle. And so growing up, I was always, you know, playing those traditionally male-dominated sports like basketball and rugby, and I loved it. Um, dad's Polynesian and mum's German. And mum looked at me one day and she was like, you know what? I don't want my girl uh, playing these sports. She's like, I want her to have all of her teeth. So <laughs> she chucked a dress on me and she's like, yeah, go play netball. Um, and I cried because I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to go play basketball <laughs> with my brothers. I wanted to show that I was tough and I was, you know, real big. Mm. Um, but that's how I started playing. And did it take you long even though you were upset about it, did it take you long to enjoy playing netball? No, the girls were really nice. Obviously, I made a lot of mistakes. I was going offside. I was dribbling the ball. Um, but the girls were so <laughs> lovely. They were like, no, it's okay. And they still gave it to me. So I think that's what ultimately um, ended up being my decision to stay, was just how nice they were. And it was like a family and they really wanted me there too. Fast forwarding a number of years, you're playing in the Australian Netball League, which unfortunately has had a few impacts due to COVID and isn't isn't functioning at the moment. But you had back in 2018 an incredible season, won the league MVP, and not long after that ruptured your ACL. What did it feel like coming off the back of such a successful season and then having to go through a long-term injury like that? Yeah, I literally went from the peak of my career right down to the bottom. So it was really, really tough, um, more mentally and emotionally than anything. Um, Like I've always felt strong physically, but as soon as I did it, I asked the Vixens if I could have some regular sessions with the psychologist because I knew it being a 12-month injury and the surgeon kind of said, you're young. Um, And with that, there is an increased chance of, you know, re-rupturing it. So they wanted me to take my time. Um, so I wanted to get in straight away just for mental health because I wanted to be as mentally tough to tackle um, this rehab process as possible. Um, but it was just really devastating because, you know, I thought I'd performed 
really well and I thought I was in good stead to earn myself a contract the following year and yeah to have then actually be bed bound and have to learn how to walk again was was quite tough. One of my favorite parts of reading about your story was leading up to your debut in the Suncorp Super Nipple. So did you play was it five games across three years because of the impacts of COVID? Was it about that before your Suncorp Super Netball debut? Yeah, so 2019 was rehab year. I did it in December. So I had surgery in December. Um, so I was looking to make my comeback in 2020 and the season doesn't start until later. So I was back fully training in Jan, but then obviously we were locked down. So I couldn't do anything. Um, I wasn't in the hub when the girls went to Queensland. So I was just at home watching them on the TV. It was the only thing getting me through um, that and just all the other sports that were available, which was so good. And then, yeah, again, because the season doesn't start till quite late. Um, I probably only played five matches for v in 2021. So that was almost like, yeah, a three-year no netball on our actual game experience for me. You then stepped up, got the call up to play for the Vixens. It's been described as one of the greatest debuts in netball history. So you've come off not playing many games, coming back from an ACL. What was your headspace like? You then came in and hit the game-winning super shot and, and had an incredible performance from a shooting per- a percentage as well. How did you get yourself mentally prepared for something like that? I think it started in 2021 where we were slowly coming back to community netball. Um, I just realized how, um, how much I love this sport and how easily it can be taken away, I guess, with injury and COVID. So I kind of made a promise to myself that anytime I stepped out on court, whether it be training or playing, that I was going to give 110% and just leave nothing behind because it could be my last game and I never really know. Um, so that's what I was trying to do and – I don't know. It was no different when Simone then said, would you like some game time? I was like, yes, I would like some game time. Yes, (laughs) please. I would love to play. (laughs) I was like, has anyone ever said no? Maybe I'll say no just to spice it up. (laughs) Um, So, no, I just wanted to kind of be happy going off the court at any time, um, saying, yeah, like I was happy with my performance and if that was my last game, then I'm glad I went out with a bang. You guys had a pretty tough 2021 season as a group, but you've just recently played in the preseason competition, the Team Girls Cup, and taken out the win. How does that feel in terms of building confidence leading into the upcoming 2022 Super Netball season? There was a lot of words in that. Yeah, (laughs) it's very good. I mean, we've gone through this preseason with a new mentality and focus. Um, Obviously, just the Vixens as a club have been so successful in its history. Um, and last year was just not um, one of our greatest performances or our greatest years. So I think we've just like rechanged our focus. We've got a good group of girls now. We've um, have a few international imports. Um, just kidding. It's Western Australia. They are a different country though. <laughs> it's, they've separated themselves. <laughs> they have separated themselves. We can call them international imports. Um, so yeah, just having all of these new additions to the group. Um, it's a whole new vibe and I think we had always thought we'd been training really well but I think that pre-season Team Girls Cup tournament was just icing on the cake saying yes we are on the right track and there's still so much more for us to improve and build on which is really exciting. 
Yeah, very exciting. Really looking forward to watching you this season. Um, uh, my loyalty is with the Giants because I play AFLW there, but I'm looking forward to I watching know. you at the Vixens too. <laughs> I was hoping, I was like, maybe they're separated. I don't know. <laughs> like Giants, they can just be for football. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good. Thanks so much for coming on. No, thank you so much for having me. Let's take a look at what to watch. In the Winter Paralympics, we're going to see other Aussie female athletes competing, including Ray Anderson, Melissa Perrine, and Bobby Kelly, another sighted guide. You can check out our TFAP Instagram account at the Female Athlete Project for all the schedules, results, guides on each discipline, medals, fingers crossed, and you can watch all the action on the Seven Network. In Rugby Union, the Super W comp kicked off last weekend and Round 1 saw the Queensland Reds, New South Wales Waratahs and newcomers Fijiana Drua on the winners list. Round 2 kicks off on Friday night at 5.15 when the Melbourne Rebels host the ACT Brumbies at Amy Park. The Reds and Fijiana will be both be looking for win number two when they play at Suncorp Stadium on Saturday at 5.15. And the last match of the round will see the Mighty Waratahs host the Western Force at Leichhardt Oval on Sunday Arvo. Kickoff for that one is 4.15. The sun is sure to be shining after what seems an eternity of rain in Sydney. Um, so if you're in Sydney, come along. Watch the Waratahs women continue their quest, quest for five in a row. But if you can't, all matches are live on Stan Sport. And excitingly, the Reds v Fijiana match will be shown free to air on the Nine Network. We love free to air women's sports. Oh, sure do. In AFLW, the final round is here and it's tight at the top. Adelaide Crows and the Melbourne Demons are equal with the Brisbane Lions just one win behind. The Lions will face a desperate Western Bulldogs who will need to win and have Collingwood lose to Richmond to qualify for the finals. That Lions v Bulldogs matchup will be on Sunday at 3.10pm and you can watch on Fox Footy and the Seven Network. And in what to listen to, as we spoke about before, Daisy Pearce was closed interview Last week, um, really, really insightful chat with, as as Chloe said, an absolute pioneer of women's AFL, someone that grew up playing with the boys as a kid, that old chestnut of a story, got told she couldn't play, found a home at the Darabin Falcons and, you know, just dominated. How about having the best and fairest trophy named after you? That's an achievement, right? And then winning it yourself. Amazing. That's a real flex. <laughs> Something else. A little International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day to everyone, by the way, and to you, Bez. Um, Hats hats off for all that you do for women in sport and for TFAP as well. Tell me, what are your International Women's Day's commitments? Where are we going to see you? There's a lot of panels this week. Um, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed already. There'll be be a lot happening. I'm excited, um, but it, it is absolutely my biggest week of the year. Chock a block? Chock a block for when you're a female athlete who campaigns for gender equality international women's day is the full schedule well you're a hot commodity thanks (laughs) um if you want to watch something the office for women in sport and recreation is offering an array of online speakers and presentations there's no cost um to watch it it includes the incredible jess fox a panel discussion on the future of sports leadership with tanya hosh who's the exec gm of the inclusion and social policy at the afl Tal Carp, the CEO of The Y Australia, and Kelly Ryan, the CEO of Netball Australia. So a great lineup there. If you want to check that one out, we'll put the link in the show notes. 
And that's the wrap. I'm a bit out of breath. Was there a lot in there? There was a lot in there. And only fitting for our 50th. Big shout out to you, friend. You've been here for all 50 and just get better. Like a good red wine. Thank you so much. Cheers to you. (laughs) See you next week. See you, friend.